On April 8, 2013, Flight Directors Erica Gould and Rick Sordelay spoke with SDCF Producing Director Ellen Rusconi to discuss the responsibilities and roles of theater's flight directors, gain a better understanding of the role of the flight director and the support he or she provides in storytelling on stage. Hello, I'm director-choreographer Donald Byrd, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. We're here with guests Erica Gould and soon Rick Sordelay. He is stuck in the Lincoln Tunnel right now. Um, so we all have Erica's and uh, Rick's bios in front of us, but I did want you in your own words, Erica, to start us off with kind of talking about your, your giving us a brief bio of yourself. Oh, gosh. Um, well... Uh, I actually started as a dancer and choreographer originally, so and moved into directing from that. So getting into fight choreography was just an obvious and natural thing for me to do. Um, and I do a lot of different kinds of things. I think I, I don't see myself in one little box. I, I do a lot of classical theater. Uh, I do musicals, and I do new plays. Um, I think that the connection amongst them for me uh, isn't those genre categories so much as I'm not so interested in hypernaturalism. I am always really interested in how I use the space. I do a lot of site-specific work and environmental. And I think that probably with all my stuff, I both come from a very physical movement-based place, but also a very text-based place. I also teach voice and speech, and the text is really sacrosanct to me. And I see the text as a musical score often, in a way, um, especially with a classical text. But I think any great writer uh, is always writing that way, that rhythm is really important and the muscularity of language. So the meaning is in the text for me, but I definitely see the text as something that takes the actor's body over uh, and that it gets communicated through that physicality, um, but but definitely through a specificity of articulation and and what that's doing. So I'm definitely like what we would call an outside-in person, Although I think it's inside out, because I, I think that actually we're working from the core of the body, which is the inside, but in the sense that the physical leads to the emotional, as opposed to imagining how you feel, and then finding out, trying to figure out what that would mean physically. I would flip it. So, and what type of like which of the various types of stage combat do you all of them? Of them. Um, re- you know, there's there's certain fight styles that are listed as the ones that you learn through SAFD, um, and certainly I do all of those. And but can sometimes, you explain what SAFD oh, is? Oh, sorry, yeah, Society of American Fight Directors. Um, and people can get trained through them, through certified teachers and fight directors and fight masters, um, and there's different weapon styles and fight styles that are taught, unarmed, and um, then the others are more historically based in terms of the of the weapon, like broadsword, sword and shield, rapier and dagger, single sword, which is the one that's not historical so much because it's really swashbuckling, which was invented by Hollywood pretty much. It's like fencing combined with Errol Flynn and stuff like that. Um, and uh, small sword, quarter staff, I think I got all of them. Um, I may have forgotten one. Knife. Rapier and dagger? Knife. Oh, and knife. And Thank you. Firearms. Yes. So... 
so there are those, but in, in the real world, it doesn't always break down that way, obviously, because somebody might want to make a choice to do some weird thing. Like, I, when I did Troilus and Cressida, which I directed and, and also fight directed, and so at the Trojan War, I wanted a very raw, nasty feel for once we finally got out of all of the... Um, I, I, mean, I was going to curse, and I don't think I should. The <laughs> bull of the um, of of the way people are thinking about war versus what it really is, and so I wanted something r- really raw and violent, and so I used lead pipes, and I used them both as a kind of combination of quarterstaff and broadsword. So in terms of technique, I was using them as both those things, but obviously that's not a weapon that you would learn in a SAFT um, class. Uh, so I think you apply, you know, and and somebody can come up with any kind of idea. I mean, I've seen people fight do fight styles sort of with fans, you know. So it can be anything, really. And generally, do you determine what weaponry you're using or what style you're using, just as you say? I mean, it's not totally dictated by history. Yeah, no, it isn't. I think. I mean, it could be. I mean, that's totally a directorial choice, and I think that's a place, right, where the director, if the director and the fight choreographer or fight director are not the same person, that's a conversation that needs to be had. And I think it... It, it, it needs to come from the director's vision of the production and the director's interpretation of the work. So is it is it very important that you're presenting something that really feels historical and accurate and you want to really go there and have weapons that people would have been using and that's probably a consistent choice with the costuming or maybe you want to clash, make a clash between those things and a dissonance, maybe that's a choice. So I think it all would have to come from the director and if it's a new play, the playwright, and what their vision is for the story that they're telling. Um, but even even if you are using broadswords, say, for a medieval play, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to use them exactly the way we think they were used in the, in the Middle Ages. So I think all of those are artistic choices because you're, you're telling... I mean, what a fight director is doing, what fight choreography is doing is what direction always is, which is you're telling a story through physical composition and movement in rhythm, on stage, in time, three-dimensionally, um, and it's, it's moment-to-moment telling a story. There's a narrative. And so what's, what is going, what's the narrative you're trying to tell and what, what is going to serve that? And that would lead to your choices of weapons, as well as aesthetic style in terms of the design. I mean, it would be very much, I think, connected usually. I can only speak for myself, but it would be connected for me with my conversations with the design team as well. And how much do limitations... Um, of a production play a part in making this choice. And I'm asking you, and I will ask it again of Rick when he comes, because Rick has done 56 Broadway shows, including all of the Disney shows. So I'm not sure that there Which are I limitations not. on that. I have not. I'm, I'm very honored to be sitting here with Rick, even if he's in absentia. Um, because, I, you know, I think his limitations will be... Fewer. <laughs> different than yours, or maybe they're exactly the same. Doubt it. (laughs) Well, they would be very different. I mean, he might face much more stringent ones because a corporate entity is dictating things to him, whereas mine might be, you have no money. Right, Um, right. uh, But what are your limitations? And how much do limitations Well, there is that, the money, you know. Um, Although I I just, I mean, I don't mind limitations. I think creativity is born out of restriction and limitation. Um, If you throw money at something, it usually means you're going to end up with a, 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 a sort of weak lame choice, I think, um, and not a rigorous one that actually works. And I definitely, my aesthetic as a director is, um, and, and as a choreographer is, 
less is more, and if you don't absolutely need it, it shouldn't be there. And, and so having an economy of choices is sometimes, um, sometimes you're forced to come up with really brilliant solutions when you can't do the first thing that comes into your head. So often that's a gift. But having said that, yeah. you know, obviously if people need to be fighting with weapons, you have to get them. And then you have to rent them or buy them, and that's expensive, and what kind you're going to get. So, of course, those those considerations are going. You know, hence the lead pipes. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think I really did think of that. I know I did. I thought of it because I wanted it. But also, I found them. They were all pieces of things that were part of other things. I didn't it, – it cost nothing. Yeah. Um, whereas renting broadswords and shields would not cost nothing. And is it still Gregory Me, where everybody gets all the stuff? Everything is different. Like, I was actually – doing what for me is porn which is going to online to various armorer sites and looking at because I'm going to be doing um, I'm right now putting the budget together for a fight show that I'm creating that um, I'm taking to Edinburgh actually and um, and so I was just trying to do the breakdown of what weapons we need and then dealing with the fact that I'm carrying them over an ocean and what happened last year when I did that which was really fun um, and what happened costumes last year? well <laughs> it was not free even though I told them I have weapons in here but they're not really real but they really um, but I, I was there's there are many armorers and and they have different specialties and and people have different preferences uh, um, like Baltimore um, uh, there's there's a Baltimore and I, there's just different ones like they're very much known for their broadswords um, there's this uh, guy Tom Fiocchi who makes beautiful small swords and I have one from him and um, there's a shot there's a lot of people and it's very much about personal preference and the prices are different and you know so there's a lot of options now I think I just want to give an editorial remark for those people who are listening on podcasts that that you really kind of you get this glow about you when you're talking about your weaponry so clearly this is you know as you say something that it's gets illness. you really thrilled which is great in a in a in a fight director right I mean yeah I really I mean it's I love it mm-hmm. um and I find more and more that I bring it into into acting classes. I teach movement-based classes, physical theater, um, and a lot of classical theater and Shakespeare. And I find myself bringing this in all the time because it is the <coughs> most, it's such a clear, a, a pure, clean way to experience being present in your body and playing an intention with clarity. And it's really great training for actors and certainly in a fight on stage, it is about telling a story, uh, something we had talked about earlier, yeah. two different characters should not fight the same way. They're different people. <coughs> how, how are they going to fight? Just like how are they going to walk? And what clothes are they, are they going to wear? So as a choreographer, you're not just saying, oh, well, well, so I'm doing historical-based stuff, and it's Romeo and Juliet, so I'm going to do Rapier and Dagger, and it looks like this. But that doesn't mean Mercutio my version of Mercutio fights the way my version of Tybalt does or this actor's version or this director's or the one we come up with collectively. So, so it's, it's very much about character and, then it, and, and it's about intention. Every move you're making, you have an intention, which is usually some version of I want to kill you, but in a very specific way. So, you know, I, I want to do a particular thing and, you, and the actor needs to be very, very clear about that. I mean, it's usually going to break down to I want to kill you, I don't want to die, but within that, there's a lot of specificity. So what, so, so you did mention that earlier and I didn't want to pursue it then because I like to be fresh, but so if you're going to, you know, when you're saying that, the way that they fight is defined by their character, get, can you give us an example of that? Well, yeah, I mean, someone might not fight well. 
Um, like the actor may not fight well? Uh, no, the character. The There's character. that too, which is a different conversation, which I think we were going to talk about, of like how do you work with actors and their capabilities. But no, the character might not. I mean, the classic example would, would be, you know, in Twelfth Night, you know. But um, do you want to show that somebody's scared? Do you want to show that someone's over overly confident? Um, do they make rash choices? Do they deliberate? Are they strategic? Are they trying to to intimidate the person? It's all the choices and all the questions you would ask when you were, are directing a scene. So then, is that what power, status, you know, intention and and strategy? What's your what's the character's strategy, or what does he think it is, or she thinks it is? So it sounds like that's what the director should. One of the many things that a director should be looking for when working with a fight cor- fight director or fight choreographer. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that you. As we were saying, like I'm more likely to choreograph fights in my own shows. I, I do, I will choreograph fights for other people, but and once you worked with a fight director, and and I have had the director. one experience of, of having a fight director come into something I was directing, um, but the director has to start the process and say what story he or she wants to tell, because that fight is going to tell a story within that scene, and is going and that scene is part of a larger play. And the director has an interpretation of that play, and that has ha, that brings in all sorts of issues of tone and rhythm, uh, and and energy and meaning, and and a fight director shouldn't come in and impose that unless the director really doesn't know. But then they're not doing their job. Right. So um, that would be the first conversation to have after obviously discussing style. Like, are we going to hit each other with broomsticks? Or I mean, because the whole something that happens most. The fact is, what you choreograph most is unarmed. As much as that doesn't make me glow, right? The way talking about like I'm going to eviscerate you with my small sword, but um, uh, and and I I I I will be totally honest in saying I really enjoy getting women to fight, being able knowing that I get I do that that is very empowering and there's and women can be fantastic, um, but mostly what you're doing is you know you're more likely to have somebody hit someone over the head with a lamp. You know what generally happens. I mean, unarmed is what you do. You're mostly and and fighting that kind of fighting doesn't look like boxing. It's not clean. What is and how do you take something that's messy? Because what really happens in a bar barroom brawl is messy, and art isn't reality. So we want to tell a story. How do you clean it up so that you can follow the story but still capture the essence of what it is? How do you distort it to illuminate? You know, but what you're mostly using is what happens in real life, and most times, you know, in most plays, people aren't picking up a broadsword. But I think in terms of, uh, I I just got off on a tangent, but in terms of a director and a fight director working together, obviously you need to be on the same page about that. Discuss the style and the weapons and then the story you want to tell, and then I would come back with something and make sure that that's in sync before I'd go any further. You know, if I were fight directing and not directing... um, and in terms of my personal process, I, as, as a fight choreographer, the first thing I do is I map out the fight. I basically storyboard it, and I leave the details out. Because what I'm trying to figure out is what's the story I want to tell. Um, and that could be, like in the rover, I, there's a fight that takes place off stage. Where I was like, no, no way. I'm putting that on, and I'm having seven people in it. So it's going to have all these different movements, and there's and then there's going to be a moment when three people are fighting here, and two are there, and what's the story? And before I figure out the actual moves, I'm going to storyboard that and figure out who's winning, who's losing, why, how, what do they, how do they feel, all of that stuff. 
Um, and if I were working with a director, I would show that person that before I ever went any further, you know, because could, they could be like, oh, my God, no, 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 no. That's not what I was thinking. So, um, and I don't know how other people work, but right. that, that would be where I would start. And then the specificity, as, as with directing, uh, regular directing, I will go in with knowing everything and being prepared to know nothing. Um, and That's true even for a fight. Yeah, because I have to work with my actors, right, um, in both capacities. So, so that com- that brings in several issues. One, what can your actors do? What are they capable of? Because giving them something awesome that they can't do is not awesome, mm-hmm. and giving them something simple that they can do could be very awesome. So y- you can't live in a fantasy world of like, oh, if only they could do blah blah blah. I really want to put a mm-hmm in there. You know, it's not that's not real. Um, so you're you're working with other artists, you know, that you're collaborating with. So just as with a rehearsal, I wouldn't, I wouldn't figure out the blocking ahead, you know, down to every little detail, even though I might have seen all of it in my head once, and it's in the back. And I might end up with something that looks exactly like that, but I wouldn't get it, I wouldn't get there by saying, go do that. Um, I'd build it and collaborate and see what happens. So it's the same thing. I will have ideas. Um, I have my overall structure. And what I, what I would call the storyboard of it and the sort of the floor plan of the fight is very important to me, too. Like, how am I using the set? Like, the fight I was just talking about, we had, like, the set at, like, three levels. So who was where and who was jumping off what was something I knew. Um, but the moment-to-moment moves are something I'm going to go in with ideas and be prepared to just get rid of them because I need to work with the actors who are actually going to do it. And they might have really cool ideas. So, uh, some people are very loose. I know that some fight choreographers will say, I, I see what you come up with, especially if they're working with fighters. See what you come up with. Yeah, really? like, in, as, as a part of a rehearsal process. Like, they'll say, I, I, you know, start here, end there. I know you guys know how to do this. See, so come up with some moves and let me, let me see them. And then maybe they use them. Something else that I, something that I really enjoy doing, um, I, I like very much to work from historical Fighting, um, just as a practitioner, I find that very exciting. So I, I might look in a Renaissance manual or something, and and maybe this is something I would do as a director if I were activating like a painting as as a way to explore something. But you, you can activate like a plate in a fight master's book. So I might look at some moments, and I mean I did this really recently. Like we had a fight in something, and we had one a particular parry, and then I saw on this. You know this this image from from a, a, this medieval fight master, a different parry. It was so cool, and I, I literally texted. I was like, change that to, a, a, and I just took it from there because it just looked awesome. And I, I thought that's a much better way to tell the story we were just trying to tell. That it looks really cool. So there's a lot of different ways to get ideas or whatever. And so you could give some plates to some actors and say, see what this inspires you know, and show us some stuff. Uh, this is if they're really, they know what they're doing, obviously, uh, and not at speed. <laughs> um, how do you, so how much time, I mean, this is also going to be a different answer, you, yours and Rick's, but since you're in charge of the room, since you're the director, you can spend as much time as you want on fight choreography. So how much time do you spend? That gets really, that's, that where, that's where it gets really tough because I can't. You know, I still have to budget my time. It's the same thing I experience when I, I choreograph, I direct and choreograph a musical as a dance choreographer. It's hard because you are 
it's, it, it's not the same efficiency that you can get of having multiple rehearsals going on simultaneously. I will definitely have a fight captain um, or an assistant who, once we built it, is going to take those rehearsals for me because I can't be in both places. Mm-hmm. And I have to, as you would always do with a rehearsal process, look at the entirety, look at how much time you have, look at what's important, make a guess about how long things will take, know what order in which you think you probably want to do things in terms of the process you want to have, and then start dividing it up into small pieces. And that will tell you how much time you have for things. And so I have to be subjected to those limitations, whether I'm two people or one, right. you know? Right. Um, so even though I might want to just, wow, the most fun thing about this play is just this rapier dagger thing, and I'd like to do that all day. Like, I can't, you know, if I also have to do something else. So. But in an ideal world, how do you how do you ensure that it's properly rehearsed? Um, as if I'm doing both or if you're doing both, yeah. Um, I mean in terms of time. Like having having an assistant, having someone to hand it off to. Because I won't be able to it won't be properly rehearsed because I won't be able to do both those things. And how often will you rehearse the fight? Um, it really depends on how complicated it is, how much a part of the show it is. The rover has six or seven sword fights in it. Um, and it was written by a woman. Hey. <laughs> Just saying. Um, and then, you know, if you were doing Romeo and Juliet or Troilus and Cressida, which has the Trojan War in it, um, those are huge fight shows, and obviously you're going to spend a huge amount of time on it. Or it could be one slap, you know, and the person comes in at the end and does it for you. You know, that, I mean, that's right. a huge right. range. Right. And so I think like anything else, there's there's a dance number. How, how many dances are there? How much time do you want to take for that? How trained are your people and how much time are you spending teaching them how to do it versus just developing the fight and refining it and practicing it, which is different than teaching them the skill, which they may or may not have, right? Those are different things. Hello. Hi. Here's Rick Sordelay, everybody. I am so sorry. The traffic tunnel and business is crazy, so no sorry about problem. that. No um, You know Erica. Yes, I Hi. see you again. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I was just saying, I'm very honored to be sitting at the same table oh, with you. I feel the same way. Oh, please. Well, anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for getting here and getting yeah. out of the tunnel. Well, thanks all of you for <laughs> indulging this long wait. Uh, I'm really terribly sorry. Um, so bring oh, me no, up to speed at this party. What's happening? Well, you know what? I, I, Erica has been talking a blah, lot about blah, her blah. process and stuff. And mm-hmm. I and I one of the reasons why I wanted the two of you to be here tonight is because you have very different careers, and I'm sure that that probably means, or maybe it doesn't, that you have very different processes. Um, so I would love to hear now from Rick on some of the same questions that I've asked Erica, um, just because. You know, we've heard her side, the way right. that she does things. It would be great to hear from you. But first, we do all have your bio in front of you, but if you could give us a brief synopsis, it would be great um, for those on. I, you know, just started off as an actor, um, BFA at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Superior, MFA at was, uh, uh, Rutgers University with Bill Esper, uh, if anybody's ever studied Meisner. The uh, cornerstone to all my work is behaving truthfully under imaginary circumstances. That came out of, uh, the. that was sort of the main strut to Meisner training. So by applying an actor's point of view to my work, it's enabled me to um, create as realistic a fight as I could create under the imaginary circumstances that the director has created. And so uh, that that has probably been the best training I've had is as an actor. And, uh, you know, then working as a... I've become a director and a writer. And so those, those other cross-pollinations have informed me even greater 
how to put this work together. So uh, that that's sort of me in a nutshell. Um, in terms of uh, the process, it really starts with, if Erica and I were going to do a play together, the first thing I would want to do is talk to Erica and say, tell me your story. And then I would listen to what she has to say. The operative word is listen. I'm not in a position to volunteer anything until I hear the story. I want to know exactly what the point of view is that Erica wants to tell. Then when you get done with the storytelling aspect of it, you have to take a look at um, who, who's going to be there and what do they bring to the table in terms of a skill set. Recently I worked on uh, Paul Giamatti's Hamlet up at Yale Rep. Uh, we started pre-production. I know that's a question you're going to ask about. We started pre-production in um, November for an opening in March. And an actor like Paul Giamatti was very um, eager to begin sword fighting uh, because he doesn't have a skill set for that. He'll be the first one to tell you that he's not a very athletic man, but he wanted to serve the play. Boy, does my hat go off to a guy like that. And that is rare that we find that, where an actor is going to take it onto themselves and say, I'm going to show up on time and prepared. Great. The guy showed up on time and prepared. When I mean on time, I don't mean at 10 o'clock ready to go to work. I mean on time mentally. Uh, he was very prepared. Consequently, it's an electrifying production. And, you know, critics can say what they will. Some have praised it and some haven't. But you cannot fault this man for showing up to work ready to go. And that is something that I always admire in any actor, be they come from the television world, the film world, or the theater. When an actor shows that kind of uh, a willingness, you, you have to honor that. We've uh, come to an agreement on what the vision is and how I can help her in terms of uh, what the actors bring to the table, and then we go to work. And then the thing that I try and do is um, create a seamless collaboration between my abilities and, and, and my collaboration with the director so that you, the audience, watching, you don't see the fight scene. I don't, I don't want to know about the fight scene. I don't want to hear about, oh, I went to a play and I saw this really great fight. I want you to tell me about this really great story where they fought is what I'm interested in. So, you know, I've worked really hard against promoting my own skill set. I feel like it's a disservice to the director and to the piece if I get in there and start to say, well, Hamlet could do this and Hamlet could do that. But Hamlet wouldn't and couldn't. He's fat and scat of breath. So when suddenly Hamlet's able to throw a, a dagger 30 feet across a stage and hit Claudius in the heart and he falls 10, 15 feet into the arms of, oh, it's just come on. That's a bunch of theatrics that is better suited for a Jackie Chan film, in my opinion. So that's uh, not necessarily, unless the director wants that. And I've done those productions. I've done more than those <laughs> that's what the director wants that's where we're going I look to think of myself as the first mate the captain says uh, we're going to Cuba you like great I'll bring the suntan lotion and I'm going to support that vision 110% so how can a director help you to do your job the best in, in pre-production and what do you want to accomplish in pre-production pre-production is really about clarity in my opinion uh, I, the more a director is clear with, they, with what they want in their storytelling, then great. If a director says, I'm not sure what I want, um, you know, I'm, I'm not clear, what, can we, what do you think we can do, then I feel like the permission's granted to collaborate. Then you do collaborate. You say, well, here's, here's some options to consider. Um, I worked with Bob Falls at the Goodman on King Lear with Stacy Keach, and it was an amazing experience. We, we had a pre-production meeting in June, 
that Bob flew all the des- all the designers out for. And then for four hours, and I kid you not, it was four hours of complete bliss and joy of sitting in a room with one of the grandest storytellers I've ever met. And he had his um, the set, a box set that the designer provided, and he proceeded to tell us in excruciating detail what he wanted to see from King Lear. And there was a moment during tech that I had this epiphany as I'm watching. I went, holy cow, we're doing everything he said he wanted done. We're really doing it. And that was a guy who, I think that he said that was his second stab at Shakespeare. He said it took him 20 years to really formulate what he wanted to say. But when he finally said it, it was an exquisite production of King Lear. And when you say excruciating detail, can you give um, Excruciating is the wrong word. <laughs> that sounds like we are in pain. We were not. I, I should have said in really minute detail. He was so clear. He was clear about everything that he wanted. He was clear about the feelings he wanted to evoke from the play and wanted the audience to feel. And he, he demonstrated a sort of... Um, it was like an electrocardiogram of, of what he wanted the audience to, to feel during his storytelling. And, and some of it was extremely graphic. When he came to the fight scenes, he, he talked, I mean, in graphic terms about what he wanted. He says, um, how long does it take to really choke a man to death? Well, about three minutes to really make sure his lights are out. Okay, then when we kill uh, Cornwall, that's what I want to do. I want, I want or Albany, rather. No, was it really a Corn- No, it was Cornwall. Uh, that's what I want to do. I want to really choke him to death with his tie. And great we did it and you know three minutes we all looked at each other and went okay that's just a little much <laughs> so we, we knocked it down to two minutes but it was phenomenal and that pre-production work paid off most of the time <laughs> fight directors uh, were an afterthought I, I cannot tell you it, I, it's got to be in the thousands of productions that I've done where I get a phone call during tech <laughs> oh can you come down? Oh, we know the actors said that they had stage combat training. Oh, one of them is certified. Blah 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 blah, and they think they can do it. And you know what? I applaud that. Anybody who thinks they can do it, you should give it a shot. You really should. But if you're doing open heart surgery, don't operate on yourself. That's all I'm going to say about it. But we do get called in many times at the last minute, and then you don't get a chance to really perform your duties as a fight director. Then you you start becoming just. A, a fight, let's get through this show kind of guy thing. <laughs> and then you end up, you know, not nobody's really happy with that kind of work. You just not. And uh, you just do the best you can with it. Um, and hope no one goes to the hospital. Well, you know, I was thinking about that when I was running over here from Port Authority, and I was thinking, you know, usually in art, you try and say to your students, I teach at Yale, I've been there for almost 15 years, and I try and tell them all the time, you know, fight directing is an art form. It's just an art form where there, there, you know, normally in art you, you want to say there are no wrong ways to do art. There's no wrong way to express yourself in an artistic medium, except in fight directing. <laughs> the hospital thing. <laughs> because, yeah, you, 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 <laughs> if you do it wrong, then somebody's, you know, picking up their teeth at the end of the run or something. So there, there are certain rules that we don't break. I'm sure that Erica and I may have uh, differing opinions about certain things in our process, but at the end of the day, I can guarantee we're going to agree on safety. And that, you know, to me, I always say that there's there's five rules to stage combat. Uh, the first four are safety, and the fifth one is art. And so, you know, you got to cover the the safety 100 percent. Um, I don't know about you, but I always look at these actors, and I think to myself, you know, I've got three kids. I want my kids coming home the same way I sent them out into the world. 
and I, I can't afford in my own heart to allow anyone to get hurt not for my career or for a director's career or for a playwright's career if everybody can't go home at the end of the night the way they came in the door then I don't want to do it that's horrifying the thought that something oh. and it happens all the time and in performance I mean you you, you have to be dubbed be- because of the adrenaline and and so it has to be super safe because whatever they're doing in rehearsal there's it's going they're going to up the ante and and you have to protect against that kind of an event. I have a question for you. What do you call fight speed? Like, like what is your version of fight speed? I used, to, I used to subscribe to what I was taught, which is you should never really go to what you would call fight speed until you're in performance because you're always going to speed it up. Mm-hmm. But as I became someone who did more fighting myself, I like to fight fast, and I don't... Thing, and I don't feel comfortable not having experienced it at speed until it's in front of an audience. That feels reckless to me. Yeah, so I, agree with I, I think that I think that a fight call has to be s- much slower. You know, a fight call is. I mean, I'm sure I would, you know, but you, that's the other thing when you're asking about time. Like, it's different from other things. It's more like dance, but it has this other element of danger. So that it's not just about rehearsing it and, oh, it looks good and we know what we're doing. You have to keep doing it over and over and over again or it won't be safe. Right, right. So literally, like, right before, you know, you have a fight call before the, every performance, that should be slow. And, and and be about specificity, making sure this is in my body, and knowing moment to moment what I'm doing and why and just locking into it. But if no rehearsal was ever up to speed, that freaks me out. I don't know who told you that, but I would... Someone when I was, God knows, yeah. I'd like to kick him in the ass. <laughs> I, the, the, the thing that I always say about fight speed is, to me, I like to have my actors learn that it's half speed, full intensity. Right. So if we get them up to half speed, full intensity, it's just inevitable, like you say, you know, they, they want to put that little extra juice to it. So if I tell them half speed, full intensity, they'll get to where you want them to be, which is about three-quarter speed, full intensity. If we say three-quarter speed, then they go to a, like a full speed, and then nobody's happy. Um, doing Scarlet Pimpernel for years, I would send that thing off on tour. I was like, great, fight looks terrific. And about a month later, I get a call. Can you come out and take a look at the fight? Why? What's wrong? Well, it's just, you know, it seems off. And you show up, and the actors are going at breakneck speed. <laughs> and the conductor's going, like, at breakneck speed. And his little baton could start a fire he's going so fast. And, you know, you go, guys, what are you doing? He's like, oh, it just feels so slow. To you. Uh-huh. But to an audience who's never seen the fight before, it is a blur. And then what happens, and you'll see this. Imagine 3,000 seats of people, and they're sitting on the edge of their seat leaning forward. The fight starts, and it's so fast that they, you watch them just give up. They cannot decode right. the information, and they go, okay, oh, oh, you know what, I'll just wait till it's done. And they sit back in their seat, they usually cross their arms, check their watch, yeah. and they wait. Don't you think, though, that with the influence of... Uh uh, especially with the shaky cam and the handheld cam, our audiences are getting smarter with no. fights. No, no, <laughs> sorry. I wish they were. They're getting smarter with movies, and they can watch movies and bring a greater sense of intelligence to the movie making. But when it comes to fights, your brain can only decode so fast. You just can't. Sure, I understand that. So in terms of a fight, it's live action. So I don't get the opportunity, like I do in a movie, to focus and I can't do close-ups, and I can't do angles. I have to do everything in such a way that I have to build a focus into it, allowing you the opportunity to bring this information through your eyeballs, upside down, into your brain, to get turned back side up, and then for you to 
hopefully in monosyllables, explain what you're seeing so that you don't get ahead of the fight. Sure, but inside of all of that, I mean, inside of the, you know, the rotation and the set and the, and the way that you're, that you're sending your energy in the fight, you are sort of building that focus. And so I'm not saying that it should be of an equal speed, but don't you think that there is now some sort of pressure to not, not up the ante, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think there's, uh, but, you know, there is a, there's becoming more of a call for the Spider-Man-esque, you know, the bigger, faster, stronger. Well, you just stage. said the words that, you know, yeah. are going to lead anybody down the wrong road. I totally I, I, I cannot abide by Spider-Man-esque being uh, something that you would put into fight directing. They had no fight director on their on their, uh, on their creative team. I understand. I'm saying just in the sense of, of not particularly of that style, but I'm saying you're, you're seeing something that's, uh, the audience is asking more. And, and viewing more, and so I think... I, I see think your point, and I really do. I, I, I agree with you that, yes, people would like to see uh, movie-style fights on the stage. I got a call uh, a couple years ago from um, Radio City. They were doing a big $40 million production, and they were talking about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And could <laughs> we get those actors on stage to do what they did in the movie? Could they, could they look like they're teleporting? I said, yeah, we can do that. Well, how do we do that? Well, you need a truss, and you need wires, and you know. And I started to explain this. What do you mean a truss? What do you What do you mean harnesses? <laughs> they can't fly by themselves. That's. On, I mean, I'm not making that up. I wish I, I wish I was, but but there is a degree of people out there who would like to see us push the envelope, and to to a degree, Erica and I and other fight directors will try and deliver those kinds of goods, but only to the. Um, well, only to the extent of what an actor can deliver to the skill set. Yeah. Now, if you have a, a, a trained group of people, um, if I had a fight team that we worked for five years and we were able to push the envelope, we would do amazing stuff. I don't know anybody who's going to pay my group to sit around and do this. <laughs> and the fight shows traditionally don't make any money, and there's not a big draw to them because after the first two or three fights, unless they're super clever... You, you start to get battle fatigue. You start going, oh, come on already. Mm-hmm. It's like Three Musketeers. The real challenge to the Three Musketeers, usually there's you know 12 to 14 fights in most of the productions I've done. You have to be very clever about having a different event in each fight so that the audience doesn't just go, oh, God, here they go whipping out that sword again. So to, to try and you know, maybe re-answer your question, I agree with you that the audiences want this, I agree that there's certain audiences, probably like yourself or a young athletic man who are saying, I want to see more out of the actors. But the danger is that if we try and push it, that's where you're going to start to see what happened on other shows uh, on Broadway and other places where they push the envelope with groups of people who didn't have the proper people in place to make sure they were safe. Sure. And don't you, wouldn't you say that the thing that, that would best overcome the battle fatigue isn't some cool trick that you just did with this sword, but that each fight has a different energy and is telling a different story and the stakes are different. That, that's what an audience is going to watch. I and think the it, operative word is story. Uh, always. I mean, it's, uh, we were just talking about this when, before yeah. you got here, and, and, and I think this idea of illuminating truth di- through distortion and the, what does a chaotic bar fight really look like, that's not what we're doing because that doesn't tell a story. So it, even if that kind of fight is that fast... It's not, it's, no, no one can understand it, no one wants to watch that. So 
it, it, I think an audience will be drawn to something that they get pulled into and get invested in, you, th- you know? I think maybe speed is the wrong word, because that's not necessarily what I'm talking about, about, about just having some, tricks or some sort of train going off the rails or some sort of, you know, uh, fancy new trick. But just this idea that, you know, the old slash and dash that was big. I mean, I, I got trained by Steve Vaughn, who's a wonderful man, but is becoming, uh, to his own, uh, by his own word, more and more sort of old-fashioned in the idea that the, the big the big throw-from-the-shoulder style is, is just not going anywhere. I know that you particularly with some of your and some of the other guys that are going out there with the, with the smaller, you know, rapier techniques, the more historical techniques are right. coming in. I guess what I'm really saying is, don't we think that, that is that an avenue that, that we're really leaning towards more for? You know what? I, I don't know if, if, and I'll just answer for myself, I, I don't know if I could say that there's any particular bar that fits in because each show that I do is case by case. Sure. So... Um, I did Ben-Hur live, <laughs> the arena show in Rome, and that was in an arena. I know we're all giggling, but it thing, the thing was, like, amazing. You know, we had 400 actors. We had oh five four-horse teams and a real chariot race. We had two 50-foot ships that crashed together and almost 100 people sword fighting. So, and it was, you know, directed by, and I must say brilliantly, by Phil McKinley, who mm-hmm. eventually took over Spider-Man. Uh, Phil brought such a great storytelling aspect to this. And, you know, you couldn't say bigger is better enough because you had to fill an arena. And yet, mm-hmm. under his tutelage, we were able to do such amazing work with two people. Can you imagine Madison Square Garden with just two people center stage having an intimate scene? And he was able to pull that off. And so I have a great respect for an audience's ability to follow a good story in the hands of a good storyteller. And so we can get to that. I know Steve Vaughn for over two decades, and I know exactly what he's talking about in terms of old school and all that kind of stuff. Um, Again, there are times when everything's appropriate that you've ever learned. There are some shows, I just did a Mice and Men for a buddy of mine in uh, Union City, New Jersey, 60 seats. And what you do for that, as opposed to the opera I directed, is vastly different because of the size of the audience. And yet the story's the same and the spirit's the same. And so, you know, you just have to approach each one a little bit differently depending on what the arena or the uh, theater or the intimate little space calls for, what the actors bring to it, and what the director wants to say in terms of the storytelling. And is, in that situation, is what you need from the director to help you do your best work, is it the same? It, whether it's a 60-seat theater or whether it's the arena in Rome? It all comes down to storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. And, you know, the thing I was... I just looked over your resume, by the way, uh, when I was on the bus going, oh, my God, this is taking forever. And I was so impressed with all the work you've done and all the classics you've done. And, you know, you go... Why? I'm blushing for those who can't well, see. Well, why, why is it that the classics endure? And the classics endure... they're awesome. Because <laughs> they are about stories that we still relate to. When you when you look at a, a you know a, a classic story like Medea and you you go wow what drove her to do what she did and could I be that person and when I when I do Macbeth I the way I like to approach Macbeth is every single one of us is capable of murder and if you get an audience to sit in that seat and say I would do that then you got them to the point where during the fight they're actually sympathetic towards Macbeth and if I can get that in spite of the fact that he killed Macduff's family so horrifically, and they're still rooting for him, it's because they've associated with something they know they're capable of doing. And to me, that's good storytelling. And it's, it's, about, it's about it being real. And that is separate from style. Be- because of, 
it's it's interesting it, what you're talking about. You know, I think a lot of stage combat that we see get done, and I think frankly it's often because there isn't anybody actually choreographing it, and some actor had a class once and says, I know how to do it, and he knows these three things, so they do those three things, and don't, don't really have anything to do with anything we've been talking about, narrative, character, intention, energy, rhythm, or anything. So you see bits that don't look like they mean anything, and they don't, and I don't think they look like they mean anything to an audience, and I, I think there's, I guess I fall in more in the, a little more in the historical also, but it of course depends on the show, but I really enjoy looking at that, because I really want to know moment to moment, now granted I'm going to make adjustments in this because I don't actually want to send anyone to the hospital, but w the motivation for each thing is probably I want to kill you in a very specific way, I'm trying to hurt you like this, and I'm trying not to get hurt in response to that thing you did. And I think that an audience will always understand that, even if it's maybe faster, because I think that the, the inverse culprit I've seen, nameless, where it's so slow, it, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and it's just, oh my God. And the sped up thing, I once, the first, one of the first things I ever fight directed, it was like a pirate show, and I came back like two weeks later, and they looked right. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, it, it, looked, it, it looked like, um, you know, a silent movie sped up, because that's, they had escalated, escalated out. I was like, what are you guys doing? Oh my God, it's crazy. You know, you remind me of, a, of an interesting situation I was in. Um, Tracy Letts wrote Superior Donuts, and this was, you know, right after August Osage County. And so there was a lot of attention on Superior Donuts and everybody was very excited about this play coming in. And Tracy specifically wrote a fight scene between a man in the 60s who never fought before. That was supposed to be, you know, like doubly, doubly emphasized. And Tina Landau, brilliant director, um, and Tracy were really struggling with this idea that what would a 60-year-old man who's never fought before fighting against a mafioso who hasn't fought in 15, 20 years with a heart condition look like? And so Tracy wanted to see <laughs> a six-minute fight. I'm not making this up. <laughs> six minutes of, you know, just sloppy, holding on to each other, breathing heavy, a hit, holding on to each other, breathing heavy, a push, holding on to each other, breathing heavy <laughs> kind of a fight. And, you know, it was part of what, what the storytelling that was important to him is that that his character at this age, who is a pacifist, decided that this meant enough to him to fight back. And he, he wanted to not see a fight scene. He didn't want to see John Wayne suddenly come out of this character. He wanted to see this sloppy terrible fight scene. And then um, another director who will remain nameless was doing, a sh I was doing a show with him a, a, like a year later and he's like, now listen, I don't want this fight to look like that, that thing that was in Superior Donuts. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I know Superior Donuts, I did that fight. He goes, oh, sorry. sorry. What I meant was, <laughs> and I totally got it because, you know, I was really proud of the fight and I was really proud of what T Tracy uh, and uh, Tina and I came up with it was one of those things where if you got it, then you understood it. And if you didn't get it, then it was painful to sit through because it was a, eventually, I think it came down to like a minute 47 seconds of a long, drawn-out fight scene. And we put a lot of action into it that was realistic and truthful to the point of view. And that's what we came up with. And I, I will count that as one of my uh, moments in my career where you know, you kind of go, you know, this is what the director wanted, and this is what the playwright wrote, and this is what they're going to get, and it wasn't necessarily something that showcased my best work, but that's not what it was there for, and that's, that's the trick. 
That, that is always the But it also was, you were being informed by intention and storytelling, though. That's right. And, and that, is, that is very different from, I'm doing these moves. It, it ends up looking like dance, and, and not to you know, be dismissive of dance, which is where I started, but, but it looks like a dance routine that isn't, hasn't been choreographed well. It's just moves that aren't connected to anything. And an audience will check out and just know that that's fake. And no matter what you're giving them and what the vocabulary is and no matter how unfamiliar they are with it and maybe you made up this weapon and it's never existed, if the actors are really committed moment to moment to something that, that makes sense, that story will be translated through the movement in their bodies and an audience will be completely riveted. And, and if it's too fast for what their intention is or too slow for what their intention is, the audience, I think, will check out also because they know it's not real. They don't buy it. It's not, they know it's not real. But do you think, I'm sorry, do you think an audience actually expects us to be real with a fight on stage? You know, uh, if, uh, do you mind if I pitch? No, please. I, I, uh, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't define I mean, what I mean by real. Right, not real in the sense of literal, but, but based, based in real feelings, but yeah. It's kind of like, you know, um, I did Reefer Madness, the musical, mm-hmm. which was, in L.A., phenomenal. And then we lost a little something along the way here in New York with a different uh, set designer and different costumes and, you know, a producerial input that wasn't necessarily as good for the show as we would have liked it to have been. It went on to become a really fun film. If you haven't seen the film, it's fantastic. There's a certain style to the Reefer Madness kind of reality that, and I made quotation marks for those of you who can't see that. Uh, there's there's, There's a style to it that was like over the top but 100% committed to. Same with Urine Town. We had to be 100% committed to that action in order for it to be funny. Because what made it funny is their commitment. It looked real. I mean, in, in Reefer Madness, we took a hoe and we bashed a guy's brains in and then we, we souped our hands into his head. And, you know, and, and the audience was laughing hysterically. Where we should have, had that been really real, all gone to therapy for the next you know 20 years. So it, it all depends on the... Um, tonality of the play uh, in the, the, the King Lear that we did with Bob Falls we took out Gloucester's eye and we fried it in a pan and the audience loved it it was the most appropriate thing to be done at that moment but it wasn't um, something that you would necessarily do in Reefer Madness for instance so you know it, it all kind of depends on the tonality of it an audience will check out so quick if they don't believe in the story you set up if you tell them it's going to be a certain way and then you come contrary to it or the actors don't commit to it, you watch them just check out and, in my opinion, they should get their money back. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I always think, I would, um, just to continue with what we were talking about earlier, it's, it's about style and, and, and that can be whatever and you have to be consistent within it. And by real, I wouldn't mean naturalistic because that might not be the style. Well, very few musicals actually ask you to be realistic. Sure, sure, but it's it, it, it's it, if you if you buy it with, within the reality that you're in, and I and I always I always feel directorially that one of the first questions I have to kind of ask for myself, and I will always challenge a playwright about this if it's a new play, is what are the metaphysical rules of this world, and they can be anything. But if you say they're one thing and then break them, an audience will leave you always. You know. Um, and, and the rules could be that there are no rules. That's okay. But if you set up a certain world, uh, which as a director, that's your job, and, and then you don't follow it, an audience won't trust you, and they'll go away. And, and that's part of that. Like, if you did a fight that stylistically didn't belong in that world, that would, then they would, 
that's the magic of what you're talking about, that right. they would laugh at, at someone gouging on an eye or something. What Sorry, and I, what were you saying? Uh, yeah, I was going to say that uh, we, I, I witnessed the, the worst argument between a fight director and a costume designer. <laughs> <laughs> but there were five little letters in there called B-L-O-O-D. <laughs> my, my question is, uh, the fight director, uh, during the rehearsals, takes under consideration, let's say, what the final costume is going to be mm. uh, by looking at designs or what? You, know, you, you, hit, you hit your nail right square on the head. And many times a costumer and a fight director and the director need to be in the same room before a costume is purchased or started to be built. Um, doing the Scottish play and uh, we get to tech and Lady Macbeth is supposed to come out with her hands all bloody and the costume is screaming, no blood on the costume! And everybody's looking at each it's other like, play. did you read this play? Oh, but I rented this costume. This costume is almost $10,000. And you're like, are you kidding me? So this disconnect that sometimes happens, and this comes down to pre-production again. If you bring a fight director in too late, then they don't know all the rules. And so if you have a, a Dan Sullivan... Uh, 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 Bob Falls and Erica Gould, somebody who understands and gets it, they're going to bring you in and you're going to talk about all these things long before you hit those critical junctures where suddenly you're fighting. There should be no screaming and yelling ever, ever, in any situation concerned uh, with theater, it, especially in front of a cast. But, you know, we've all been guilty of it. I've all, we've all seen it happen and it happens because we're passionate people who get emotional. But if... We do our jobs well, and we collaborate like ladies and gentlemen. It should be joyful, and the joy is just in doing your craft well and doing it with other people who do their craft well. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. Two questions on things you've touched on. Um, one, I direct a lot of out-of-the-box stuff. Now, when I direct a musical, I have a musical director and I have a choreographer, and they say, this person can sing, this person can dance. I decide they can act as great. Now, when we're working out of a box, and it's, okay, you're going to direct everything for a rent fair, and this guy's going to sell turkey legs for two hours, <laughs> sell turkey legs for half, and then do the Robin Hood fight, which is going to run all the way through the thing. You've got two weeks. No one's ever said... I want a fight director here to make sure that this guy who can sell turkey legs <laughs> and maybe act is going to be able to learn and actually is qualified. You know, anyone can put, put letters you know, after their name on their resume, but it doesn't sound like you guys have ever been asked to come at that stage and say, you can't afford to hire this guy. I can't get him. No, I think you often are. Don't you think? I mean, haven't, aren't you brought in as, as the casting? There are times like uh, I did a Three Musketeers in Seattle. I was brought in in casting. Um, I had a young man come in and uh, tell me how he had been Rick Sordelay's protege. And I was very interested because was, tell me, what kind of a guy is he? And everybody at the table was giggling. But, you know, uh, there are those occasions when you, you, you actually find yourself in the room and you do an actual fight call. And it's, it's fantastic. That's, that's, that's a sign of a healthy production with a director who really gets it. Most of the time, though, I don't get called in the fight calls. I don't. And I, and I would also, let me interject, is that also usually an institutional theater? Because they may have more of a budget for that. Oh, uh, You know what? Broadway, shame on Broadway, does not do that very often. You know, you, you, you find yourself kind of as a fight director because 
there are a lot of general managers who don't look at fight directing as an art form. They look at us as somebody who, you know, they can call in during tech. And usually we're a big pain in the ass for them because we want stupid things like uh, recognition and a bio and uh, royalty because what we're offering is a slice of the pie that has a lot of berries in it. Yeah, we may not be there as long as the sound designer, and we may not be there as long as the set designer, but what we're doing is showing up, and most of the time, we're working with the director at the climax of the play. And many times, what we're saying and doing helps shape the entire afternoon so that when you have invested two and a half hours and you get to the end of that play, you're there at the collaboration of a fight director and a director. And more often than not, we're offered a pittance compared to what the other designers get. Fight directors are currently not represented by any union. And so we are striving to uh, maintain the little we got. Like every time I go to to a, a negotiation, I have to practically start from the beginning in order to just get what we had when we first started. You know, I'm still offered prices <laughs> from general managers that they were offering me 15 years ago. And you go, but... But, but, and then they can many times will go to the next guy on the list because your artistry and your style doesn't matter to them as much. And people don't see it. This is something we talked about at the fight steering committee town yeah. hall or whatever, that that there's a, a an inability or something or resistance to seeing, I think, the similarity between a dance choreographer and a fight choreographer. You would never talk that way to or about a dance choreography. But how is it really different, especially if the show has a lot of fighting in it? Now, I it's think we bent around your, your question a little bit. Did, did we answer it? Well, no, no, no you, you did. I mean, I want to know how often do you get to be part of the can this person do what I'm going to need him to do? Because it kind of leads it kind of leads into my second question. If you're doing like you're doing a rent fair, you get like two weekends of rehearsals with these people while they're learning to cook turkey legs, <laughs> and they're doing the Shakespeare main show, and then you need to know can you trust them to go you know quarter staff fight on a log over a river? My other question though is I think probably realistic for a lot of people listening who don't have the opportunity and the privilege to work with Broadway professional actors who are getting up at the right time of day and drinking their green tea and going to work at the theater. They're leaving their job at the insurance company. They're racing through the McDonald's drive-through. They're getting to you, and you have to take them out of their day, get them to a safe fight call, because you haven't been paid for a proper fight director who isn't going to be there every night for the show. Your trained fight captain, captain may have been the guy on the broiler when they all went through... The drive-through to get there. I know for myself, I always try to do a half-speed and a full-speed. And every night, the half-speed fight is always like, "Have we ever run this before?" And we go, "But for a lot of people, we don't have people where this is all they do." And you've got to kind of coax them down to make your fight call. And you may only have 15 or 20 minutes of fishing. So my question for you is, how do you make a fight call? You know, how do you make a fight call efficient and worthwhile for everybody? And if you've got to take a guy who really isn't a trained fighter, but he's going to be the fight captain for that show, you have to tell him three things. What are they going to be? Uh, first of all, you don't take a guy who's not been trained and make him your fight captain. I mean, you just it's a recipe for disaster. Two, 
but it happens. I mean, I, I, I've, I've had, you know... Off-Broadway showcase going... Oh, dude, I can, if I said the names right now, I'd probably lose all my jobs. But Actually, they're, they're, that's a question that I have, too, is how often do you get to decide? Because sometimes... You I should decide every time, every single time. You should decide your own fight captain. Here's what I've been, been doing, and uh, tell me what you think of this. I'd be curious, Erica, to see what you think. Um, I've been training my stage managers at Yale. We have an actual stage combat class devoted just to stage managers. And we are teaching them how to be good fight captains. So they're learning not only the basics of just fundamental fights, but they're also learning how they can sit at a table and actually help a director in terms of knowing when and how to sort of shape a fight or help the fight director with that particular director so that at the end of the day, they're a really highly placed person who's the fight captain. They're not another actor or an understudy who's come in to do this. They're, they're someone who has to be at fight call anyway, and they tend to be pretty astute. They may, they may not be the most athletic person, and I don't like to just take the most athletic dude who knows how to fight really well and make him my fight captain. Because sometimes those guys don't elicit the kind of respect from the rest of the cast, or they don't have the kind of sensitivity to other members of the cast who are not as athletic as they are. Another thing I'd like to address in terms of your scenario is you can only give the actors what they're capable of doing. And if i got a dude who's making turkey legs and two weeks to put a fight together, I'll guarantee you his fight is going to be just what he can handle, and that's it and nothing more. And a lot of times what I find is in situations like that, you usually have a young fight director who's trying to make their bones, and they're trying to come in there and give you more than you need. And you, you consequently are looking at each other going, man, we almost got hit in the teeth again tonight. Just calm down. Tell your story. But tell it with what you have to tell it with and not what you think you have to tell it with. And I, I think um, the stage manager idea, brilliant. And also that's someone who's monitoring the show. And if they're, if they're educated in this and they can monitor the fight as well while they're also looking at that blocking was off, the fight looked like this and they actually know what they're talking about. And I think also, apropos of what you were saying, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Obviously, it's going to look better if they can do it separate from the safety issue even, but even aesthetically. And the sensibility of somebody who knows how to look at it um, and think about the other people is a very different sensibility, perhaps, than someone who's just a performer. Those are not the same things. And being a great performer doesn't mean you know how to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, totally, totally different. And I think often, I think this happens with um, with direct early director, early in the process of becoming a director, directors, as well as choreographers, you kind of, I've noticed this certainly with dance choreographers, they, when they come in with something that looks really great when they do it, and that's what they come to rehearsal with, and then they expect everyone else to do it, that's not a great choreographer, and I think that applies to fights as well. You know, where I was talking about you come in with certain ideas, but then I'm going to work with people in the room, because they're the ones who have to do it, and they're your collaborator, and if you feel confident in your abilities, you have the confidence to not know everything and what we were talking about earlier and know that when you know, you'll know and, and, and to take other people's ideas and not feel threatened by that and come up with something that the people who are going to do it actually can do and that maybe they even contributed to as opposed to this looks really cool when I do it. What does that have to do with the person who's actually performing? You know, that's more about ego and right. trying to make a splash, which isn't going to make a splash if they do it badly or end up in the hospital. So, so how do you assess that? An a- if it's a brand new actor who you've never worked with before, how do you go about assessing their ability? You know, um, I do this exercise when I do workshops, and I put everybody into a circle, and I'll shake everybody's hand, and I'll introduce myself. Hi, I'm Rick Sordelay. I look them right in the eye, and I give them what they give me in terms of a handshake. 
So as we give a handshake, if she gives me a kind of a firm handshake, and currently I'm shaking someone's hand right now, I kind of give back <laughs> what they give me. If I shake somebody else's hand and they turn out to be a concert pianist and they give me just a, a, a little bit of a handshake, I give that back. Not any more than what I'm giving because I don't want to come off like I'm going to crush your hand each time. <laughs> then I'll say to the, to, to the circle, what did you just learn? What do you mean? You just had your first stage combat lesson. Oh, I did? Yes, you did. They all sound like they're from Minnesota. Because <laughs> I'm from Minnesota, so that's what I sound like when I'm asking questions. So then I'll say, you just experienced uh, an assessment. I'm looking you in the eye, you're looking me in the eye, and we're saying our names to each other and we're shaking hands. So we're starting with eye contact, we're starting with hand-to-hand contact. And it's the, that's the first foundation, or the first brick of the foundation for <coughs> your relationship as a partner. From there, that leads into me quickly making an assessment of what, what I think this person can do based on my 25 years in the business. Uh, 12 of those years was spent on Guiding Light, where many times I would go in as their stunt coordinator <laughs> at 7 a.m., and I would shake everybody's hand, and by 11 o'clock in the, uh, in, the, in the morning, we had to have a big fight. And I had dudes who, I had to make a decision, is this guy going to be able to work with my million-dollar talent and not put them in the hospital? And so you error in a conservative way. So, looking for assessment, I'm saying, okay, what can I think they do? And knowing that I'm usually wrong. And I love what you said, Erica. It makes me so happy to hear that. That when you, when, you, when you ask <laughs> actors to invest in their own fights, you get a better fight. And I don't waste time writing down all the choreography like I used to when I was younger. And then I would end up fighting with my own self. Right, yeah. And I was addicted to my own status as the fight director. And felt like I failed if I didn't do what I wrote down. Now, I come in and I see what you all can do. And then based on that, we put together magic. And then I'll say, well, what do you think you'd do? What do you think you'd do? I bring up Macbeth again because I've done that show so many times. And I had a Macduff one time say, I, I would have to taste his blood. I, I, would, I would literally have to taste his blood if he killed my wife and children. And so in his armor, we put a piece of sponge on his right side, just below the armor, that was soaking in stage blood. And he literally went down, he bit him on the shoulder, and he tore the stage or the uh, sponge out, and it looked like a big chunk of his flesh. And it didn't look zombie or vampire-like. It looked like a man who was so enraged he had no words. As he says, I have no words. My, my, my voice is in my sword. And so when you tell a story like that, based on what the playwright wrote, based on a director who's willing to go with a vision, and an actor who's willing to invest in a commitment, it was electrifying. I was at, with Bonnie Monty at uh, Shakespeare Theater in New Jersey, and you know Bonnie's one of the most courageous directors I've ever worked with. She's, she's so about the story, and she's so about the text. You, you sit there just like, you know, with your jaw on your chest half the time when you're watching her work. Michael Kahn's like that at Shakespeare uh, Theater in Washington. You know, a brilliant storyteller. And he's also, he's also very clever about the style of the show that he's portraying. You know, this is a master. I tell him all the time, and he's just like, ah, whatever. <laughs> but I tell him, you know, I always walk away from, from an afternoon with Michael Kahn where I walk away having learned so much. And, you know, here I am at 53, and I go, wow, I have learned yet again. And so I always think of myself as um, kind of like Patty Crane, who, who just thought the whole maestro thing was so ridiculous. And, you know, he kept saying, you know, I'm not a maestro, I'm still a student. And borrowing from Jessica Tandy, where he would talk about, to the day he died, being a student. And I think that is the proper way for an artist to behave, is that 
how how can any of us be a maestro <laughs> if if we're still learning? And I feel like every perform or uh, every production that I'm a part of, I walk away enriched with what I've learned. And know? it's exciting then, and it's a place of humility. You know, it's, you have technique and you know what you know, but you go on a journey and you learn things. That's the most; those are the most exciting shows, of course. Having done this a lot, both of you, have you ever run across the actor who can't contribute? You know, there's a lot of actors who you'll say to them, well, where are you coming from? And they'll, they'll think they're so clever, and they'll say, stage right. And you're like, okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, and, I'll, and I'll respect that. That's, that's fine. If that's you know, really, really where you want to come from, I'm happy to take away your gift to yourself to make your own choices. So you put it in their hands. It, so I, yeah, I will at first, but if, you know, if I have a, a, a direct, an actor who just simply doesn't want to contribute, that's not a problem for me. It's like, you know, it's like Erica pointed out. You have confidence in your ability to just roll with the punches and cope with what they give you. No problem. The, the pirate show that I mentioned where I went back two weeks later and it was like, like Mickey Mouse, um, there was an actor in that who had no physical impulses. Um, and I realized, oh, my God, I have to give them to him. Like, uh, I can't work the way I usually work. Um, there were extended farce sequences that were re- really physical comedy, and I realized, like, uh, I have to hand it to him. And what was miraculous was, like, several weeks into this, he said to me one day, I don't think I'd do that. Beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. I said, really? What do you think you would do? <laughs> And it was thrilling. So sometimes, you know, it's just that they don't have the background or they don't trust their physical impulses. I mean, as I, when, at the beginning of this whole thing, you know, I, I just work so much. The truth is in here, is in your musculature. And some people haven't had the training or the experience to trust that and know how to tap into it. That doesn't mean they can't. And sometimes you can activate it. Um, and that's gorgeous to see. So even if you think someone doesn't have those kinds of impulses, maybe they'll get some. Maybe you can... You know, incite it. Well, you so. probably have a lovely rehearsal atmosphere, and it, you know, well, you know, we all do. But <laughs> I'm sure it is. You know, John Rando and, and John Carafa built a beautiful rehearsal atmosphere during *You're in Town*, and it enabled the actors and the dancers to make a contribution to it that was phenomenal. Phenomenal. It was, it was phenomenal to watch them contribute and to own and to have ownership to the work, and to understand that. This was something that all of us were doing. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I admire so greatly about John Rando is his ability to get a group of actors excited about a piece. And, and to, to, to the point where mm-hmm. the creative juices yeah. are, are flowing and you're going, this is why I do this. This is why I got up this morning, was to be in a room with people like this. And, you know, you're lucky when you have those kinds of directors. And there's a lot of good directors out there. But there's not always good situations. And there's not always good situations that good directors are put in. And so sometimes really good directors are forced to use particular actors or TV stars or movie stars or whatever that they would like to maybe get more out of, and they get what they get, and they are coping with that as best they can. And believe me, nobody gets up in the morning going, I can't wait to screw up rehearsal. (laughs) Everybody shows up, and everybody is trying really hard. And I get really, like... You know, I'm really like enough already with you know movie stars are coming to Broadway and ruining Broadway. Shut up, shut up, really. They're coming here to make it better for themselves, and they are. I've never once met a single movie star who didn't have training who came here to screw things up for anybody else. They came here because they were very excited to to work in a medium that's the top of the game. And they, they came here 110%. I've never seen anybody show up who didn't come 110%. When we did uh, Wait Until Dark, the endearing thing about Quentin Tarantino, as we went around the room, 
and he was introdu- everybody was introducing themselves. He said, hi, I'm Quentin Tarantino, and I know that I shouldn't be at this table, <laughs> but because I'm Quentin Tarantino, I am. And you know what? Everything from then on was really awesome because, you know, the guy got it, and he did 110%, and his performance was fantastic for what he brought to the table. He exceeded his uh, wildest imaginations. And, you know, he did a great job. But was it a challenge? You bet. And did we all have to work really, really hard to, to bring him up to a speed that the other Broadway performers were at? Yes. Did he walk away from that enriched? You bet. You bet. And it was something that, you know, again, you, you look at yourself as a professional in this, in this world and you say, that's a moment in crafting that you can take to the bank. Because all of us in our crafting made an amazing craftsman even better. And he went back to his medium with more information and a greater sensitivity than he came in with, I think. Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) (laughs) With with realistic uh, fights, or realistic fights, um, especially like hand-to-hand, I found watching shows like that, that that feature those, that there's like a fine line between uh, realistic on stage and so realistic that you're worried that somebody's actually getting hurt. And like... And well, I like really enjoy a good like a good Cyrano, where like oh my God, he he really got thrown to the floor and it looked like and you get that jolt in your stomach and everything, but like you know there's that you know that sensation that an inch further and you'd be worried that you actually cracked his head on the floor, and like how do you like whip how do you master that boundary between the like the that suspension of disbelief that you want the audience to have that like they're really in a fight and I'm in this world of play versus it comes down to taste and style. Yeah. You know, it really comes down to taste and style. You know, you, you I will always turn to the director and I will look for that moment where the director will inform me that this is what they want to see, or it's too much or it's too little. You know, my tastes are different than the director's. But at the same time, I was all, I've also learned that sometimes the director goes, no, I love it, it's so realistic. And then you'll have to say, but your audience is going to think that person truly cracked their head because it's so realistic that you need to tone it down so that you stay in the realm of, like you and said you earlier. And you lose them. Exactly, because then they worry about Frank they're worrying about that, and instead of Tybalt. Like the suspension of disbelief just like went to hell because they started worrying about that. I, I think that... Just like, you know, real, when you know you're in the hands of a really good actor, um, the way that feels in, 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 as an audience member, at, or a director, although, you know, people generally don't totally get what directors do, so they don't know that's what they're feeling, but the feeling that I'm in good hands, I things are consistent and cohesive, and I'm being taken on a journey, and somebody who knows a lot about what they're doing has put this together, and the people who are creating it in front of me know. And you kind of set, settle back as an audience member and just let them take you and I think the same thing is true with fighting um, if stylistically obviously there's issues and there are different ways to approach right and if it's consistent with the overall style of the piece that's helpful but if the actors really are working in a safe way that looks like it's real but they are doing it in a way that as a performer they're in control there's a really big difference between a character being out of control and an actor being out of control and an audience can read that even if they haven't been to acting school you know and and a character can be tense but the actor shouldn't be tense so if the actor is in command of his craft i think an audience knows that and then they sit back and they they check they they let you 
you know, go and, uh, and, and they'll go with you. You know, they'll check into that story and suspend disbelief and, and go. And, and the second they feel that anxiety of, like, they don't really know what they're doing, I think then they start to worry. And I don't think that has to do so much with how realistic it is, I think, um, unless you're really doing something totally gross. But, like, I'm thinking about Bug. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I, I just, I was so swept away by being so horrified by violence on stage. When you can do that, it is so awesome because it's not a movie. And I see what you were saying, like the effects you want to have. There was something in a production of Tempest I did where I knew, I just said, at this point I want to give the audience a heart attack, you know. And obviously not really, but yeah, kind of. And well, when you can do that in, in real time in front of someone, it's spectacular, but I never worried in Bug that somebody was really losing his tooth, you know. But then, you know, J. David Bremer did Bug. Um, it, it was It was. It was, oh it was astoundingly brilliant because, D- you know, David's an amazing fight director, and he, he also really understands the difference between, you know, what is a reality, what is a stage reality, and what is ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, he was able to take Bug and just turn it into, you know, this amazing storytelling where I think he was very successful in um, your your ability to not go, oh, there's a fight scene, there's the scene, there's a fight scene. It just was one beautiful story right. that Tracy Letts wrote. And, Gorgeous. Uh, who directed that? Do you remember? I don't, it's terrible. Dexter Bullard. Yeah. Who was it? Dexter Bullard. Right. Oh, Dexter Bullard. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great production. Astonishing. Way better, in my opinion, than the movie was. And I, do, I enjoyed the movie very much, but so often... You know, when, you, when you've been touched by a, a live story like that, you know, the movie rarely lives up to what you remember being so exciting when you saw it on stage. So, And I would say, too, like what Rick is saying, the, the violence in that was, like, exquisite. And obviously I'm into that, but it was, it was thrilling to me what they were doing without, you know, it's not a film. They're really there doing it. But you weren't ever thinking, oh, there's the fight. That's, there's the place where the fight director came in. It was one story and it was consistent. And everything that happened um, in the realm of violence in that world was dictated by and necessitated by and justified by the world of the play yeah. and the narrative. I want to so. use this as a perfect example because you, you just said it so brilliantly. This is the God. difference between a fight director and a fight choreographer. And what, what a guy That's like David Bremer, just what she just described, uh, Erica just described, that David did, what I do, what you do, is fight direction. What fight choreography is, in my opinion, and there are people who are going to differ with this, but you know, choreographers tend to come in and they will choreograph movement that the director dictates. I've had directors mm-hmm. get up and actually show me exactly what they want, and I will then choreograph safely the translation of their physical activity. That, to me, is a choreographer. I would say that you take a guy like uh, Sergio Trujillo or Susan Stroman or Kathleen Marshall, I would not call them dance choreographers. I would call them dance directors. That's interesting. Because what they do is storytell. When I saw Contact and the girl in the yellow dress Mm. blew me out of my mind. It was so great to be moved storytelling-wise by a dance, I had never truly experienced it quite like that. It was genius, in my opinion. That, to me, is directing. And so sometimes I feel, especially with fight directors, dance choreographers, I think, can have the word choreographer and everybody gets it, especially thanks to people like Bob Fosse. But I would like to, you know, here and now, say that the word fight director is what I and others like me do, and that fight choreography is a secondary thing that's a part of fight directing. And so even to the point where we are described as fight directors, mm-hmm. we are not fight arrangers, we're not fights by, we're fight directors. 
So that's Rick Sordelay just stating this as <laughs> his own personal little fact, but that's, uh, that's going to be my argument, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> it almost sounds like choreography is what you would refer to as what we were talking about earlier, about the thing that you figure out once you're in rehearsal, like the details and the nuts and bolts, but the big picture, the storyboard, and the stylistic choices and the narrative and the energy and the rhythm and all those things, that's the directing part. Right. And, you know, there are times when I'll come in and I will direct a fight, and then the director will change everything in terms of tonality and dynamics to fit their story. I prefer to do it with them right. because you know how it's constructed. When you come back from a rehearsal and a director has changed the fight so dramatically that to the point where it's even unsafe, that's when you have a disconnect. And nine times out of ten, that's usually connected to some kind of an ego, inexperience, uh, not confidence situation that... You know, then you're into a whole other aspect of what fight directors do, which is, you know, I'm fond of saying it's like taking another guy's wife out to lunch. It's a tricky, tricky experience when you're fight directing if you're doing it well. Can I ask you a quick question regarding that? How often are you usually there during rehearsal and then post? You know, you know? Um, I'm one of these guys who uh, I'm a big proponent of you, you get paid by the job. I do not like to be paid by the... As a matter of fact, I, I don't get paid by the hour. I won't anymore. And I don't want to be paid by the day. I think a day rate is very dangerous for fight directors. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did Moonlight and Magnolias at Manhattan Theater Club, for whatever reason, we had one particular actor who, during rehearsal, could throw a slap brilliantly. In production, at night, he would hit the other actors so hard, oh they would put in a complaint. I ended up going to almost every fight call. 40 visits every, in my every, calendar. Wow. 40 visits to the show that normally I, I shouldn't have to go to. Did I go back to the producer and ask for more money? More money? No. Because in my mind, that's the way this, this goes sometimes. You have to show up and finish the job. And if, if an actor is struggling to, to find the fine line between really hitting an actor and doing the, the craft of creating an illusion, you, then I didn't do something right. i got to fix it. So... I, I do the job, and if the job takes 10 visits, then it takes 10 visits. If it takes, uh, you know, sometimes um, you you got to go in and really clock in a lot of time. Sometimes you go in, uh, I just did Servant of Two Masters. Uh, we did it in uh, at Yale Rep, and then we continued it at... Um, was that Christopher Bay's? Yeah, Christopher okay. Bay, brilliant production. Uh, because it was already in place and was not a real hard fight, you know, you end up doing like two or three visits. When it was in Minneapolis, I did one visit. I came in and tuned it up and I left. And, you know, everybody was clapping me on the back like, good job, <laughs> way to do it. You came in for one visit. It's like, yep, one time that's happened in my entire career of my 5,000 <laughs> fight. So, you know, most of the time, at the, at, at the very least, it's three visits. It's the first visit to assess and either give vocabulary or create. It's the second visit to either create or fine-tune, and the third visit has to be technical and hopefully engaged long enough to see it in front of an audience. I don't feel like the work's really done until you see the audience react to the work, and then you know what you're really dealing with it. Um, A lot of, like I said, producers and general managers, and I don't blame them. Their job is hard. they got to look at the budget, and they got to be realistic about it. And as artists, you know, a lot of times we we go, numbers, what are those silly things? But their job is very difficult to come back to us and say, no, realistically, we can only afford to have your fight director fly across the country for three visits. No, we can do two. got to work this out. And I I respect that. 
But where, where it gets difficult is when they tell you this is what you're supposed to do as opposed to can we work it out. Um, a lot of times you'll, you'll get a phone call from a, a person who will say, well, the director says it's only going to take an hour. It's like, really? How does the director know that? I don't even know this. And I'm a professional. How do you know it's going to take an hour? And most of the time, you know, they, they say I have an hour to give. That's what they mean. And, so, you know, and, and, you know, I want to say right here and now, this whole idea that a stage slap is easy, again, shut up. It is not easy. It's very, very hard to do. And it's not just a matter of a director saying, hey, just, just relax your hand and just sort of oh swat God. him. <laughs> again, shut up. Stop it. Don't do that. Stage slaps result in loss of hearing, dislocated jaws, loss of teeth, split lips. Most of the bigger injuries I've seen have come from a stage slap. Think about it. Actors all jazzed up. They're full of emotion. It's happening at a climactic moment in the play. The text has delivered a moment where we can no longer talk. The only thing we can do is slap, and someone's out of control, and you know we're, we're at the hospital. It's not easy, and it doesn't take just an hour or two or one visit. It takes, at the minimum, three. Three visits, minimum. You want a professional fight director, budget in at least three visits. And those ideally come early, middle, late? That's what you, what you think? It, again, depends on the show. Um, I have done shows with, well, take art. Art has technically one punch in the entire play. It happens when all three men get into a jumble and they're all over each other and they're pushing and shoving and, and then, boom, Ivan gets punched in the mouth. And it delivers a page-and-a-half monologue from Ivan, who's the least of the three characters. And when that punch is done wrong or done poorly, it, it ruins the play. One punch. And yet so often art is done by the actors, art is done by somebody who's had a little stage combat experience. Even when it was done, you know, here uh, in New York, I, I got to say I was a little, you know, disappointed that it, it wasn't fleshed out the way it could have been. And, you know, the director's brilliant, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the playwright is, you know, unbelievably brilliant, and the play deserved to have that moment done as well as it could have been done. Was that one of your shows? No, I didn't okay. do it. They, they wouldn't pay, um, they wouldn't give a title page billing or a bio and they wouldn't pay. You know, they, they ended up paying somebody like a ridiculous amount of money with no title page billing and without a, a, a bio. And so, you know, this artistry that, that promotes a page and a half of dialogue was just ignored because, and I don't blame anybody, I get it, you know, it's just, it's just one punch but when you're coming at it from my point of view, it's it's the most important punch in the play. But it's also it's as if you're asking an audience to to be with you for a certain amount of time and then say, oh, by the way, this doesn't really count, and now we're coming back. You know, we'll be back with you in one moment. Because yeah, but then you know, you, you want, like I, I I saw the play three times. Uh, I did. I, I loved it so much. I, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, I saw it twice in London, and I saw it once here in New York. I literally watched in London and in New York the audience sit forward during the tussle, and then they laughed at the punch. Uh. And they giggled at it because it was so badly thrown. And then, you know, they sat back in their seats. And then the page and a half, they sat crunched down because they were like, I don't know, whatever. I don't believe your world anymore right. is what it felt like to me. Because, right. of course, I was sitting down in my seat, too, just like, stupid punch. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, that's my, my opinion on it, you know. But it's uh, about suspension of disbelief again. Like, they, they stop going on the ride with you then. Well, they do, and, you know, you, you can win them back, and those actors certainly did, and, you know, by the end of the play, I was, you know, jumping up and screaming because it, 
I was so moved by it. But, you know, do you have that moment in the middle where you take a little hiatus and just, you know, kind of like, oh, eh. And believe me, I, I'll be the first one to admit I'm, I'm really a, a stickler for that kind of stuff. I, you know, I'm a terrible person to go to a movie with because I'm a logic guy. Oh, they'd never do that. Oh, wait a minute. What? No, come on. You know, so I do that a lot. And that's one of the reasons I think I'm so good as a fight director is because I want it to be the truth all the way through. Right. And Melanie knows <laughs> I won't let anybody off the hook until we kind of get there. You know, you just have to, like, you know, keep pushing it because uh, at the end of the day, that's what you're supposed to do. So we've got a little over time. Does anybody have any other questions? Thank you. No, I have to go. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Right. And I, again, I apologize for being late. Very nice. I just wanted, you know, a lot of times I'll work with a company and the, the fight begins and it's electric and they put the swords away and they turn back into props. And you sort of, mm, what can yeah. directors do? Yeah. You know, what are good tools yeah. that directors can bring to the rehearsal room so that being armed is part of your I'll give you a good example. Uh, for those of you who can't see me, I'm standing up and I'm standing a, with a 90-degree stance so that my left foot is facing 90 degrees from my right. My sword arm would rest, my, my left arm would rest on the pummel of my sword and my right would rest, rest on the pummel as well. I would be in a stance. This would be a stance that you could go to the museum and you would say, oh, this was painted in the 16th century and this is how those men stood with their swords because that's really quite comfortable. And so then, as a director, I would have to do my homework and I would have to go in and say, this is the world we live in. This is how we stand with a sword. That's why a lot of times with modern day uh, Romeo and Juliet's and you see someone in an Armani suit wearing a sword and you're like, that is ridiculous. It's not even cut for a sword, first of all. And so it looks ridiculous. So you can't, you can't enjoy the line of the suit, let alone the line of the swordsman. I directed Romeo and Juliet. I didn't even have the actors wear swords. We didn't even have a sword belt because I didn't want my modern dress, Romeo and Juliet, to interrupt the line of the, the, the people and their profile with a sword. You didn't need it. And, you know, you don't in a modern dress, Romeo and Juliet. When you see them fighting with swords, it's because they're people coming in with swords. Or Tybalt is hunting down Romeo, and he carries two swords to have a duel. No problem. Nobody needs to carry a sword. So I hope that answers your question. The director has to do their homework. You have to show up armed with a physical world as well as a metaphysical world. It's, it's, it's about the what, going into a very specific world. And everything in that is there for a reason, and you can't take anything for granted. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the clothes that you're wearing and the chair you're sitting in, and the sword is an extension of your world and, and your actions and your reality. And if you treat everything in the rehearsal room that way and everything in the production, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's just, I think people check out exactly the way you're saying, oh, this is for that, and then we leave it. They but it, also it's part really of everything. Great designers who show up, and they inform your world. Like, you, you take a. Darren West or Lindsay um, Jones, who are sound designers. And they don't think of themselves as sound designers. They think of themselves as other actors on stage. Paul Gemignani, as a musical director, he's not musical directing. He's bringing another actor to work with on stage. His music becomes a force to work off of. And you, you, you take a, a costume designer like Tracy Christensen, and everything has functionality. She will never put, like she did the Scottish play for me when I directed it, Everything had functionality. You, you never saw anything that didn't have a function. I, I, I get so tired of designers who will design you know, armor because it looks cool. They're like, okay, why does it have a big disc over the right arm? Because they can't use the sword now. <laughs> but it looks cool on a piece of paper. But when you get that up there and you try to swing it, it's banging into your face, and then suddenly you're going, well, we paid $1,000 each 
for these discs on our shoulders, and you're like, well, they're going to look great in your office because they can't be on the actor. <laughs> a good costumer, good set designer, good lighting designer, they're going to create a situation that you're working off of that enhances the story, not fighting against. And anytime I have a director say, yeah, but we spent so much money for, I know I'm in trouble. Does that answer your question? But remember, the director, at the end of the day, is the boss. The director doesn't get the duck. You're the boss of what we see on, on that stage from every aspect, uh, visually, audibly, everything. We, we hear it, we see it, we taste it, we smell it. It's you. And your style is the one that's up there. And I, boy, I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I got nailed so many times for having terrible fights in a production. It's like, well, you know what? That director wanted that fight to look right. just like that. And when I left that day, that director said, perfect, that's what I wanted. So if you didn't like the fight, take it up with the director. You know, we're service guys at the end of the day. We serve the director's vision. That's what we do. If you see the Rick Sertelay fight show, then take it up with me. <laughs> <laughs> Can we answer all your questions? I think so. Okay. I- I'll tell you what. Anybody wants to take this further, I'll buy the first round. But I really appreciate you guys sticking in there for an extra half hour waiting for my sorry old butt running into the board of party. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to Rick Sortelay and Eric Cool for being thank here, guys. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.